Welcome to Authors on Tour Live, a weekly podcast for people who love to hear about books from the authors themselves. My name is Darren Fote, and today we are podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore, one of the premier independent bookstores in the nation, with three locations in the metro Denver area. You can visit www.authorsontourlive.com for a complete list of upcoming podcasts. Wait a minute, it's time to begin. We wanted to just first off thank you all so much for showing up and supporting your local independent bookstore. It's because of people like you that we can go ahead and bring in fantastic authors like Fernanda here and have these events. So to get started, we have Fernanda Santos here for the Fireline book, as you all know, and we're very excited to have her. Um, and we will first be doing a speaking, and then she will be doing a signing and questions as well afterwards. So thank you so much. I'm going to go ahead and have her get started. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I want to echo Dana's uh, thanks to you um, for coming out tonight, um, for reading books and for supporting your independent bookstore. Books are, you know, very important to people and they open up the imagination. I have a seven-year-old and I'm so happy that when she comes to a bookstore, she knows to look for the children's section and grab her books and to sit down and read them. So very happy. This is my first book. uh, And, um, I am uh, not from this country. I am originally from Brazil, and I grew up there. So had you asked me when I moved here in 1998 if I would ever write a book in English, I would say no. Uh, And then if I one day decided that I would write a book in English, and uh, if you were to ask me if I would ever write a book about wildfires, I would say absolutely not. Uh, I know nothing about wildfires, or I didn't know anything about wildfires until um, I moved to Arizona in 2012 to cover uh, the Southwest for the New York Times. And uh, one of the first stories I did was not about this fire, but it was about a fire that happened in 2012. And it wasn't even so much about the fire itself, but it was about the, the camp that they set up um, to uh, provide food and, and um, uh, materials um, and a place for the firefighters to shower and get some rest and sleep. And I just thought it was so interesting that a virtual city emerges um, overnight to support sometimes thousands of firefighters who are fighting wildfires. Um, And of course, um, on uh, June 30th, 2013, I... um, covered uh, for the New York Times the uh, the fire that took the the event um, that took the lives of the 19 firefighters uh, who were uh, part of the Granite Mountain Hotshots. Um, I, I usually like to start these talks by telling people why I decided to write a book since I said already that I wouldn't write a book in English and I wouldn't write a book about fires. Um, and the reason is that I was just very curious. And I think a lot of times we um, set out to discover things because we just have all these questions that we want answered and uh, we can't quite figure out how to answer them or we don't allow ourselves the time that we need to answer these questions properly. Um, So on June 30th, uh, I was home in Phoenix, which is where I live with my husband, our daughter, and we had neighbors over with their kids. So we were having pizza and wine, typical Sunday evening routine. Um, and, um, my husband was bringing the dishes to the kitchen and scroll through Twitter. He's a former journalist. So it's an old habit of his and, and, uh, a constant obsession of mine. And he saw something about, um, 19 firefighters missing presumed dad in, uh, Prescott near Prescott, Arizona. And he came to me and 
told me that. And I said, okay, I'm going to pack. And I went in my bedroom. I put some, some clothes in my backpack. I grabbed my laptop, my charger, my cell phone. I went to the living room and I told my neighbors, I'm really sorry. I have to go to work. And they looked at me like, it's Sunday and you were just here eating pizza with us. And I said, well, my husband will explain. And my daughter looks at me and I said, oh, mommy is going to be right back. And uh, I was away for nine days. Um, in fact, I reunited with my family in Maine because we had a vacation scheduled. They set out for Maine first and I met with them for the tail end of the vacation there. Um, but I, um, you know, as I wrote the stories that I did for the Times, um, I found myself having more questions than answers. In fact, on my notebook, um, I immediately started writing on the back page all these questions that were very basic, but I thought critical to understanding what happened that day. The very first question I, I wrote was, who the heck fights wildfires? And those were the words I used because to me, it seems so crazy that anyone would essentially sign up for a job that means risking your life every single day, um, not just from the proximity of, uh, from being so close to the fire, but also from rocks that roll down the mountain, from, you know, roads that are treasures and you have to drive through just to get to the place where you need to park and then hike however many hours to get to the fire line to fight the fire. Um, there are all sorts of uh, risks that surround this job. And, um, that are easily accepted by the people who do this job. Uh, I had questions uh, such as, uh, what are wildfires? How do wildfires burn? Um, who who are the people who fights fires? Um, and um, I realized pretty quickly that the curiosity I had was not going to be um, fully satisfied just by the newspaper stories that I was writing. I felt that I needed more time to understand fires. I knew a lot about urban fires, about city fires. I had covered the FDNY in New York for three years, and I had written countless stories about fires in, you know, neighborhoods, but I had never really gone deep on the world of wildland firefighting, which is very different. So um, I decided um, all of a sudden that, you know, the only way that I could um, allow myself to find these answers was if I wrote a book. Um, and, um, and I remember going home and telling my husband, you know, I think that I, I want to write a book about this fire because I, it's not so much the fire that intrigued me, but it was the people who fight fires who intrigued me. And more than anything, the 19 men who died that day, I was writing stories about them uh, without knowing even the names that they of all of them. I knew the names of three of the men when I wrote the first profile of the crew, and they were 19. I mean, there were 20. One survived. Um, he was detached from the rest of the crew. So... Um, who were these people? Uh, what kind of lives lives did they live? What got them going? What sort of passions did they have? Um, why did they make the decision to fight fires? And uh, and I felt that if I peeled all the layers, I would be able to much better understand the set of decisions that went into eventually leading them to a place where they were trapped by the flames and unable to escape and then eventually dying. Um, so... What I propose is that I read uh, um, an edited version of a chapter that I wrote. Um, 
that will take you to the homes of some of these firefighters on the night before they went to the fire in Yarnell, Arizona. That's the name of the town where they died. Um, you will hear uh, them um, interacting with their uh, spouses, with their children. Um, you'll hear them uh, talking about um, hopes and plans they had for the future. Um, and um, you will um, hear about some intimate scenes um, that, you know, would have gone without anyone beyond the people who were characters in these scenes knowing had I uh, not had the opportunity to sit down with these families and talk to them. And, and uh, I am incredibly grateful for that because they, they didn't have to. Um, so it's a chapter called Promises and Goodbyes. And um, be about 10 minutes, maybe. <clears throat> the Grand Mountain Hotshots got their marching orders hierarchically. The news spread from man to man, branching through a well-ordered and often used telephone tree. Eric Marsh, the crew superintendent, called Jesse Steed his captain. Steed called his squad bosses, Carl Whitted, Robert Caldwell, and Travis Carter. Witted, Caldwell, and Carter each called the man under their command. They delivered a clear directive. Report to Station 7 by 5.30 the following morning, Sunday, June 30th, 2013. We have a job to do. The Grand Mountain Hotshots had come to live by a simple set of principles spelled out on page one of their standard operating guidelines. Respond fast, solve the problem, be nice, go home safe. Be Nice was part of the crew's ethos and one of the categories in which Marsh, Steed, and the other leaders were rated in annual performance reviews. Collectively, the men had come to believe in the importance of a positive attitude and in the power of smiling while doing the grunt work their jobs required. Just before his phone rang, Anthony Rose had stood by the front door and peeled off his dirt and ash-caked whites, the dark lace-up boots that are the preferred footwear of wildland firefighters. Tiffany, his fiancée, had watched him from the rocking chair nearby, hands crossed over her bulging belly, six months pregnant. He looked exhausted. He walked past her to the edge of the backyard. He unlatched his brown leather belt removed his green fire pants, and shook the dust off them. He took off his socks and his grimy undershirt. He trudged off to the bathroom in his boxer shorts and jumped in the shower, lingering a while. I've got to go back to work in the morning, he told Tiffany. She frowned but didn't complain. Rose called it a night as soon as um, the show they were watching on the couch was over. Tiffany decided she should just go to sleep too. Before she closed her eyes, she said, I'm bummed you have to go to work tomorrow. Eric wants us to get a, an early start in case we get called up to a fire, Rose replied. Lightning has sparked many small fires all around them in the past few days. Rose didn't know where the crew would end up or if they'd go anywhere. Maybe they'd stage all day. He just knew that he and the other man had to show up and be prepared. Steed knew exactly where the Granite Mountain hotshots would be sent on Sunday. A little after 8 o'clock Saturday evening, he'd arrived home in Prescott Valley. He'd downed a cold Coors Light and some takeout Thai food. He'd sprawled on one of the new chairs on the patio and watched his children swinging on the backyard playset that some of the guys on the crew had helped assemble in exchange for beer, pizza, and their captain's warm embrace. His phone rang, and Marsh shared what he knew of the next day's assignment. 
Steve turned to Desiree, his wife, telling her that the fire he'd be going to in Yarnell seemed routine, almost insignificant. He said he might get back in time to sleep at home. He couldn't be away too long anyway. Tuesday would be the first of the crew's two mandatory days off. Billy Warnicky and his wife, Roxanne, shared a mobile home at the far end of a dirt road in Aver Valley, an arid farming town west of Tucson and three hours out from Prescott. Hot shots had to stay within two hours of their base during fire season, except on mandatory days off. That's when Billy was able to visit Roxanne. That Saturday, he stayed at an aunt's house in Prescott. Warnicky had last driven out to Aver Valley two weeks earlier, on June 15, 2013, the day before Father's Day. He'd seen the first sonogram of the baby Roxanne carried, their first child. The mobile home seemed forever under repair. Warnicky fixed what he could whenever he came by. He taped a thick sheet of plastic across the master bedroom doorframe. Dark green mold grew deep down a six-by-three-foot hole in the ensuite bathroom. The bedroom became mostly storage space and a hazard zone, out of bounds to a pregnant woman. Billy stacked the old bathroom tiles there, the boards of insulation foam, and his tools, a drill, three different types of hammer. On that Father's Day, he'd looked dispirited to Roxanne, gazing at all that needed doing at the house, and he had so little time to do it. You're really tired, Roxanne had told him. You just need to rest. Roxanne had aimed to drive to Prescott on Sunday. She'd longed for some a long time with, with Billy, away from the chaos of home. But Billy's phone call rang. I'm sorry, Billy's phone call came. Don't come, Billy told her. I've got to go into work. At Andrew Ashcraft's house, the call to Sunday duty triggered bickering and disappointment. Julianne had looked forward to being with her husband at home for a couple of days, a spurt of normality during the unpredictable fire season that she could never get used to, though she tried. He had his own apron hanging in the kitchen, and she'd already envisioned their Sunday together. Church, burgers he'd make on the grill they kept in their tiny backyard, their house filled with his presence. He walked in and she thought, now I get him back to me. She wrapped her arms around his neck and smiled at him playfully. She told him the kids were already in bed. He told her he'd have to get up early on Sunday going back to the station. The news crushed her. But you've just come in, she said. Andrew walked away in silence. He turned right on the hallway off the living room and peeked inside Shiloh's room. She was asleep. He thought about Shiloh, his his girl, during the long, lonely rides in the buggy to and from faraway fires. He'd lose himself in his thoughts, eyes closed, music playing in his headphones, maybe Ted Nugent, or maybe a country ballad he'd had stuck in his head about a homeless father watching his daughter, a waitress, who had no idea who he was. Halfway through his first fire season, Julianne had given Andrew a blank journal to record fire stories their children could read when they were older. Andrew lived for his kids, but he had distinct affection and concern for his girl. He called her shy. While riding to a fire in New Mexico in July 2011, he wrote, I won't be able to protect her forever, but the truth is, I'm going to try. There is something about having a daughter that is different than a son. I know my boys will grow up to be men and be strong and be better than I am. I have no doubt about that. I just want to be there for Shy to keep her safe. He'd stepped out of Shiloh's bedroom, walked to the other end of the hallway, and entered the boys' room. Ryder, the oldest, lay awake. Andrew sat next to him and told Ryder to take care of Mommy while he was gone. You're the man of the house. Andrew always said that to Ryder before leaving for a fire. 
As Andrew made his rounds with the kids, Julianne sat on the living room couch, staring at an Arrested Development rerun, frustrated at his leaving again. His job demanded so much of her. I'm exhausted, she said to him as he entered the room. I have to be up at five, he replied dryly. I have to go to sleep. He trudged upstairs. They lived in a cozy townhouse in an old subdivision among mostly older neighbors. Her grandparents, Jim and Alda Crockett, had died there months apart after a placid 65 years of marriage. Julianne and Andrew's union was of a different kind, a roller coaster ride, thrilling, full of ups and downs. They just snapped out of a particularly trying period. Andrew had left the house. Julianne had asked for a divorce. They draft papers and turned them in at court, resolved to end it all. Then they'd reconsidered. Merida counseling helped, but what really kept them together was the love they had for each other. It couldn't be broken. A month into the 2013 season, Andrew drafted a document. It was called Team Ashcraft Contract, and it listed 19 commitments to his wife. I promise to always take out the trash. I promise to always be honest with you. I promise to always be your best friend. I promise to be your biggest fan. I promise to always take care of you. I promise to protect you with my life. I promise to hold you. I promise to show my love for you. I promise to be someone you're proud of. I promise to show how thankful I am for you. I promise to always put your needs first. I promise to take you away and be with you. I promise to love you for time and all eternity. I promise to be the father our family deserves. I promise my decisions will make our family strong again. I promise to never ease up and coast. I promise to be mean if it means helping you in our family. I promise I will rise above my environment. I promise to love you. Andrew and Julianne fought, fought and had their differences, but they always found ways past their problems. They had a powerful connection, carnal and spiritual. The trick was figuring out how to keep it going when he was away. Travis and Stephanie Trebifield were schooled in the art of being apart. They'd been dating for five months when he joined the Marine Corps in December 2007. Eventually, he got stationed in its air combat center at 29 Palms in the Southern California desert. At a good clip, it took him five hours to drive from there to Prescott, where she was committed to a nursing program. Every Friday night, he'd made the drive, speeding along desolate roads through a national park, an Indian reservation, and miles of sand and hills to be with her for the weekend. He wrote to her every day that they couldn't see each other or speak on the phone. He had a goal of becoming a machine gunner and deploying to Iraq, a conflict whose purpose he saw through a prism of selfless patriotic duty. Trebifield wasn't the type to be easily afraid. He'd borrowed from Cat-22's Joseph Heller for his quote in the Prescott High School Class of 2002 yearbook. I have decided to live forever or die in the attempt. The rising death toll among American troops, 4,003 by the time of his boot camp graduation, March 2008, never dissuaded him. But fate intervened. During a training exercise, a fellow Marine lost his grip while helping Travis lift a 50 caliber machine gun off his shoulder, and the weapon dropped on his head. In the coming days, he started blacking out. He passed out all driving 29 pounds from Prescott, wrecked his truck, climbed out from the rubble, banged up, but alive. Transferred to light duty, Travis left the Marines three years into his five-year enlistment and moved back to Prescott in time for the birth of his first daughter. Together, he and Stephanie share the early challenges and discoveries of parenthood.
He joined the Granite Mountain Hotshots the following year, resuming the gone and gone again routine he and Stephanie had gotten used to. Before the fire season started in 2013, they had interviewed a few candidates for a babysitting job, and Travis had insisted on asking all of them a question he used during crew interviews. What's your definition of integrity? For Stephanie, his persistence felt at one amusing and annoying. Why does it matter so much, she'd asked him. Simple. The answer reveals character, and character matters when it comes to hiring a person to watch your kids, Travis had told her. That Saturday, as Travis got home from the Mount Josh blaze, the family eased back into a comfortable routine, trading morsels of ordinary news from the house from the hours he'd spent away. Stephanie grilled him a ham and cheese sandwich. It looked so small in his big hands, hands that were so gentle to her and to their girls. He dangled the girls by their feet after dinner, swaying each in turn like a clock pendulum, the girls shrieking with delight. Stephanie called him Energizing Bunny. His pep seemed endless. At home that Saturday night, she looked at him and their children and felt an overwhelming sense of completeness. The scene was perfect. Travis, Brooklyn, and Brinley, laughing and absorbed in an absolutely great time. Stephanie considered getting up, grabbing her phone from the kitchen counter, and snapping a photograph or recording a video. It would make a great Facebook post later on. But she didn't. Just sit there and enjoy the moment, she told herself. Just enjoy life. Don't always be so busy. Don't always be in such a rush. Later, after the girls had gone to sleep, she and Travis lay in bed. He cradled her in his arms and asked, If anything ever happened to me, you would just get remarried, wouldn't you? The question caught her off guard. They'd never spoken about the dangers of his job, never discussed the possibilities, or contemplated an ending to their story. Theirs was a mature love. They were intentional about making it work and centered on the goals they'd set for their family. Stephanie said, I don't know. I've never thought about it, but I don't think that I would. Why? What would you do? I would just focus on being the best dad that I could be without you here. Then he added something so youthful and unabashedly honest. So Travis, I would probably sleep around a lot, but I would never get remarried because you're the love of my life and I could never replace you. And in a high note, <laughs> thank you. I like this section because I think it shows how these people, these guys were just, you know, people like us, they had families, they have arguments at home. They had tender moments with their, their relatives. And, um, and I think it should, it's a good way of reminding us that these people who fight fires, they are usually portrayed as superheroes almost, you know, we talk about them as the elite crew, the elite hotshots and, and, and on some levels they are, but they're also humans and they also, you know, um, are faced with the same pressures that we are when we leave home after an argument with a spouse or a kid. Um, they are also people who struggle to get through the day sometimes because they are tired and sleep very well, or they are energized by the great night they had together at home with their kids and their wives. So, um, so this was the reason I picked this to read tonight and I'll be happy to take your questions. Anyone? Yes. 
Yes. So his question was, where is Prescott relative to Phoenix? Um, Prescott as the crow flies. um, Well, it's about an hour and 45 minutes by car um, from central Phoenix. And it is a northwest of the city. So it's on the um, on the mountains, much cooler than Phoenix is and the town of Yarnell as the crow flies about 70 miles from um, I'm sorry, 45 miles from Prescott. But you have to take this very windy road through the Prescott National Forest to get there. So it takes a little longer than you would to drive on a highway for 45 miles. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And I hope you read the book. And I'll repeat the question. She was asking if after I reported on the book and talked to all the families um, and brought them up to the mountain, the moment where the hotshots died, if I followed up with them and talked uh, uh, to them about the afterwards. And the answer is yes, it is part of the book. Um, I talked to uh, all of the, uh, the families of all of the 19 firefighters. Um, I felt that to uh, accurately uh, and fairly write this book, I had to meet them. And of course, they are not here for me to sit down and talk to them. So usually um, the people who know us best are the people who love us. Um, and many times um, the people who love us most are the people in our family, our spouses, our parents, our siblings. So I didn't meet um in some cases, I met with parents and siblings and spouses. In other cases, I met with a wife and the children. Um, there were a lot of different family dynamics I had to navigate. Um, every family has its own stories and history and complications. Um, and uh, and I felt also that it was important to carry the book beyond the deaths because what happened after uh, – mattered um, for the public as a whole to understanding how the system through which uh, the system we use um, to employ firefighters who fight wildfires, wildland firefighters is an imperfect system. But we only find that out when we have a tragedy like this. And uh, when I when I say imperfect, I mean that I mean that by saying that um, uh, you probably have all heard about fire season, right? We talk about it's fire season. So uh, hand crews and hotshot crews is is one of the hand crews at the top of the hierarchy of hand crews. They are made up of um, some full time employees and uh, some seasonal employees. So they start usually in mid-April and the season ends in mid-October. And when the season is over, they go on to do whatever it is they want to do. Since a lot of them are very young um, they uh, and they make good money, the more fires there are, the more money they make because they work more overtime. So they actually do want fires to burn. They don't want anybody to get hurt or any place to get burned, but they do want the fires to happen. Um, they may make thirty, forty thousand dollars during a season. And if you're 22 years old and you're single, you might spend the rest of the year surfing, playing music, you know, traveling around. I mean, you know, you don't need much more than that. 
And and these were not people who cared too much about material things. Um, so because of that, there was a big dispute after the deaths that uh, because it was so glaring the difference in terms of benefits that were that the families of the full time employees were entitled to receive, and the families of the seasonal employees were entitled to receive, and what made matters even more stark, the difference is even even more stark was the fact that um, the. Grand Mountain Hot Shots were part of a municipal fire department. So picture your town fire, your city fire department having the urban firefighters who fight the fires in the city and also employing a, a wildland crew. That's not a, a common arrangement. Most wildland crews and every other hotshot crew in the country, with the exception of Grand Mountain, uh, was a federal crew at that time. And so... Um, these guys uh, were unionized and participated in the pension system um, for law enforcement, for uh, emergency services personnel in the state of Arizona. So the difference in terms of benefits was even greater because of that. So there were lawsuits. There were there was a big fight led by one of the families um, that caused the wife to move out because of all the uh, animosity that it generated among people in town. Uh, you know, whenever money is involved, it becomes very complicated. So you kind of go, th- I go through that. And also some of the uh, rebuilding of the lives that, that some of the families have, have engaged in and have, um, and, you know, uh, representing, I guess, different aspects of the, the idea of carrying on with your life after something like that happens. This is this book is entirely it's not just based on truth is entirely true. Everything that's here, you can uh, track back to the back of the book. And I have page after page. I don't even know how many source notes I have here that will tell you exactly where the information came from. It's not a fiction. It's not a work of fiction. It's not a work of um, like a Hollywood movie based on a true story. You know, this is the story of this crew of these men and of the fire that killed them. I thought. I think. The, uh, yes. What happened to the twentieth member of the crew? The twentieth member of the crew. Um, so uh, uh, commonly during a wildfire, you detach one person to be a lookout. So that person is placed someplace, uh, you know, far enough away from the crew, but within eyesight still. Um, and his role in this case, it was a man, was to keep his eye on the fire, which was moving towards the crew and alert the crew of the fire's proximity. But his uh, point, his vantage point is ahead of the crews, meaning that the fire would get to him before it got to the crew. And that's the whole idea of having a lookout. Um, so that's essentially what happened. Brendan McDonough, a young uh, man in his 20s, was picked to be a lookout that day. Um, he had been sick. It was his first day back at work after a cold. He'd been out drinking the night before, young, Saturday night in Prescott. It's a fun town. And uh, he went and um, took this job, which is an important job, but not phys- as physically demanding as the job of, of you know, cutting fire line, of clearing the brush from the forest. And uh, at one point he saw the fire approaching and felt that his position was no longer safe. So he left. He took a ride with another crew that was also leaving. And uh, he told his captain, Jesse Steed, that the fire was coming close. Jesse said, we're fine. We got eyes on you. We've got eyes on the fire. 
just go and be safe. And um, and then he got out before the fire obviously hit his point and before the fire got, got to the crew as well. Well, uh, he has struggled uh, greatly with um, uh, PTSD, as one would expect. Uh, Brendan is an interesting character because I didn't go. There was a reason I didn't focus uh, a lot on him. And it is because there is somebody else on the Granite Mountain Hotshots who represents to me exactly the same type of character that Brendan represented. And I'll explain that. Um, the superintendent of the crew, Eric Marsh, was a recovering alcoholic. He had been sober for 13 years when he died. But his experience as an alcoholic informed the way by which he hired people for the crew and the way he treated the men and women on his crew. He had a soft spot for the underdog, and he had he was really, really big on second chances um, because I'm sure he knew what it was like to want somebody to give you a chance and not have that opportunity, right? So Brendan was not necessarily an addict, but he had a lot of trouble with drugs, uh, heroin in specific, as was the case with one of the hotshots who died on June 30th, 2013. His name was John Persin Jr. He was an upper middle class kid from West Lynn, Oregon, a suburb of Portland. Great family. Um, and uh, John became a methamphetamine addict. And he went to Prescott for recovery. And I get into all of that. Prescott has a history of recovery. <laughs> Back in the at the turn of the 20th century, it was a place that people would go to be treated for tuberculosis. And these days, the place that's known um, for uh, as a recovery community, um, known among people in recovery as a recovery community. Um, and uh, John went there to 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 be treated, and he had been sober for three years. Was working at a restaurant and met someone who was part of the crew, and then uh, eventually joined the crew. And he died fighting only his second fire. So to me, it was a, a more significant way of 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 conveying this idea of the second chance. Um, John was someone that, to me, throughout the book, served as an inspiration for my own struggles. You know, we all complain once in a while about our lives. And I would often remind, force myself to think of John Persin. You know, if John became addicted to a drug as devastating as math and he was able to, able to recover and become as healthy, uh, so healthy to the point that he could join a hot shot crew, then I can get over this chapter that's really bugging me or get over this, you know, little spat I had with my husband this morning. And uh, I still have great respect for him. Yes. Congrats on a great first book. Thank you. A little bit different question, but have you thought about maybe converting this into a one-man play? <laughs> so the... The question is whether I've thought about converting it into a one-man play. Um, and I should say, and the reason I'm repeating the questions is that this is being recorded. It's going to be a podcast. Um, and uh, authorsontheroad.com, right? 
OnTourLive.com. I'm sorry, AuthorsOnTourLive.com. And the previous question that I just answered, because I believe I forgot to repeat it, was what happened to the one man who survived the fire? And this question that I'm going to answer right now is whether I ever thought of converting it into a play, a one-man play from the perspective of the survivor. And the answer is no. There is a movie being made. It is not, um, it was not an option out of my book. It was an option out of a magazine article that came out early. But interestingly, the magazine article, as expected, focuses on the day they die and sort of the hours before the death and, and then, you know, uh, the, the event. Um, uh, and uh, the movie has since changed names and um, it's much more focused toward uh, focus in the story of the crew and sort of how it came together, which um is along the lines of the story that I tell in the book, but I never thought about a play. I, um, I don't know if you think about a play, who knows? <laughs> well, I actually uh, wrote about 50% of it already. Oh, <laughs> someone who's here wrote 50% of a play already. Well, we should talk afterwards. <laughs> Well, the reason the reason I think this book resonates with uh, people like you who write plays and people who write movies is because it really is not a story of a fire. It's a story of people that happens to have fire as a setting. And when you think of it this way, then it becomes a story that's appealing not just for people who are into fires or into firefighting. It's a story about 19 men who loved the job they did, loved one another, and really chose to stay together until the end. One can say their escape route was cut off by this wave of flames that came their way. Uh, but they did have a minute or two where they could have made a choice of, you know, one could have dashed one direction out of desperation. Another one could have said, the heck with it. I'm, you know, I'm running through this brush and I don't care if I don't make it, but at least I'm going to die trying. Um, and yet they were found very close together. In fact, the last radio communication that you hear from them um, is uh, you can hear the, the chainsaws buzzing in the background. So they were still trying to, within the very limited amount of time that they had, to clear the area around them so they could deploy their fire shelters, which are these protective blankets that are good against uh, heat but not direct flame contact. But they were still working together, believing that if there was any way they could get out of it alive, it would be if they were to do it as a team, as they had always done. So I think there's also a lesson for us there. You know, we so often get so focused on ourselves. You know, I say we don't even need people to take our own pictures anymore. You know, we can take the pictures ourselves and it's cool to take selfies. But, um, but if you think about all, every little thing you do, you have a team behind you. Um, I remember writing this book, I had an office at the Arizona State University uh, Walter Cronkite School of Journalism, they gave me a space to write. And, um, you know, writing is a very lonely job. And writing a book is kind of, uh, at times, it's definitely the hardest thing I've ever done, uh, as professionally speaking. And, um, uh, it, it was messy too. You know, I had like cashews that my husband would buy these big things of cashews at Costco and it would say, please eat. And I would just literally stuff my mouth at these cashews and type and you would get in these, you know, moments of inspiration, I guess. And of course, at the end of the day, it was a mess. 
And I would come back in the morning and my office was clean. And, you know, when day after day, and then finally I said, I want to meet the magic person who comes in here and cleans up my office. And I thought, well, she's part of my team, right? Because if she never cleaned my office, there would come a point when it would be uninhabitable and I would no longer be able to write my book from here. And and that's a small thing, but it's so important, you know, had it not been for her, you know, maybe I would have had to find another office and never be welcome at the university again because they would see how... Uh, you know, how much of a pigsty I turned the office into, but, you know, thankfully I I found her and I said, thank you. And we became friends afterwards. So anyway, um, any other, yes. What was the most surprising insight or awareness or through the whole process that kind of caught you off guard? um... You know, um, when I, uh, the question was, what is the, what was the most surprising thing that caught me off guard that, that, that raised my awareness as the, throughout this process of writing the book and, uh, the, the early days after these men died, as far as the media went, uh, were very much focused on finding out who gave the order for this crew to late, to leave a, a safe spot. It's known as the black. And that means the area, an area that the fire had already burned and go down into a canyon, which for anyone who knows, uh, even has a, a fireplace at home, knows that fire moves up quickly, right? So go down into a canyon that had not yet burned towards um, a safety zone that was a ranch uh, down the way that had been described to them to them as a bomb-proof safety zone because it was all clear around. There was no brush around it. Um, and I, it, it didn't take me long to understand that you don't make decisions in this line of work that are predicated on the possibility of death. Um, I don't think any firefighter, whether it be a, uh, a structural firefighter or a wildland firefighter, will say, let's try to go down here and see if we can make it. I think we have a good chance. Maybe we, we won't make it, but let's try. Once I accepted that, um, it really allowed me to see this story for what it was. It's not a story of one person that we can point a finger to and say, you killed 19 men or you led your crew into its death. Um, it's not the story of one decision that resulted in this horrific tragedy. It's a story of a series of things that didn't go as they should that day and that weren't caught as the days went on. And I say days because everything sort of started when the fire started on June 28th from a bolt of lightning at the end of the afternoon, as many fires start here in Colorado, as many fires start across the West. The land is dry. The lightning comes like a matchstick and light something up, and then the fire starts moving. And uh, I guess it raised my awareness to that, that I shouldn't be so focused on finding blame. We're so geared towards finding the, it's, you know, it's, it's such a black and white world we live in, right? It's guilty, not guilty, good or bad, ugly, pretty, you know, it's Donald Trump or Hillary. I mean, it's like polar opposites of things, right? And, uh, and in this case, it w- I realized that the story actually exists in all the shades of gray and um, that it would be a, a wrong story to tell if I were to focus on one decision or one person alone. And in some ways, 
I didn't write the book for the wildland firefighting community, but it would be a disservice to the community if I were to say, you know, it was Eric Marsh's decision, the decision of the leader of the crew to lead everybody into their deaths because or the decision of one of the members of the the incident command team, the people who were running the firefighting operations that day. Because what that does is it exonerates everybody else and everything else. So you don't stop and think about what is it that next time around I can do differently or my team can do differently or what is it that I should avoid? What are the red flags that I should be aware of so that this doesn't happen again? And let me tell you, firefighters will die on fires. They have died since the Granite Mountain Hotshots died. I covered the deaths of three firefighters in uh, Washington State last year. And, um, uh, you know, there were uh, others who have, who died on by themselves. Others were seriously injured. Um, it's impossible, I believe, to eliminate death from firefighting for as long as you use people to fight fires. But what we can do, I think... Um, and I say we because I think, you know, we can all play a role in it. It's think about how we can each contribute to making it less risky for them to fight these fires. Any other questions? I love answering questions. So, yes. So, uh, firefighters think in terms of lessons learned after a tragedy like this. What was the lesson learned? You know, um, it was almost as if it was... Um, uh, Meant to be. So the question was, the firefighters think of lessons learned after a fire. And it is true. They sit down, they evaluate, they, they, they walk the steps of the fire crew that die to think about the decisions and so forth. Um, and the question was, what were or what was the lesson learned from this fire? So last month, there was another fire in the town of Yarnell. The fatal fire that killed 19 firefighters burned the west side of town. Uh, and it literally turned the mountains into a moonscape. There was nothing left. The fire was so hot that uh, the granite boulders that lined the mountains there were some of them uh, were split in half just from the sheer heat of the fire. Um, but the east side of Yarnell didn't burn. And the brush on the east side of Yarnell uh, was as thick as it was on the west side, which had not burned in more than 40 years. Um, that was a state land um, where this fire burned. So there were several things that were learned that when the fire that happened last month came through, um, avoided a tragedy. And I'll go through them um, one by one. The first one was the community. In Yarnell, Arizona, people resisted the efforts to have the brush around their homes trimmed, thinned, so that in the event of a fire, their homes wouldn't burn, the whole town wouldn't burn. There would be less fuel. Firefighters call vegetation fuel because that's what feeds the fires. Many people, when um, this, the town secured grants to have uh, crews of, of uh, inmates uh, come through and, and clean up the brush, they sent them away and said, don't come to my property. This is my property. I like my brush this way. I like my privacy. I don't want you to cut it off. I'm fine. Get the heck out of here. So that was one problem. The second issue was the state of Arizona, as many states in the country, Colorado being one of them, struggled heavily during the recession. Arizona was hit particularly hard because of the crash of the real estate, real estate market. So there were cuts across the board 
on every agency. The salaries of teachers and firefighters were frozen for seven years. Teachers are just now and firefighters are just now getting raises. Um, and the budget for the state forestry division was also affected. In 2012, if I'm not mistaken, the and the right date is on the book, um, the state forester at the time testifying before the legislature said, you know, you've cut my budget so much that I'm now concerned that my ability to respond to a an emergency has been compromised. Um, so there was that. The, the first incident commander who showed up for this fire had been working for 40 days straight. He'd had days off, and I do my fingers like quotation marks because they were not exactly days off. He was still answering calls at home. And I know what it's like to be off and still be answering calls. Your mind is still working, so you're not fully relaxed. Um, and there was the response itself um, from trying to save money, trying to make do with the amount of people you had available at that moment in time. Um the response was not as aggressive as it perhaps could have been or should have been. Um, so when this fire happened last month in Yarnell, um, the situation was very different. The The town of Yarnell, right after the fatalities, got a new fire chief, and this fire chief applied for grants and cut. They 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 brought crews and they opened these, created these belts, these safety belts, these uh, uh, um, empty spaces between the town and the wildlands. They, they thinned the brush with chainsaws, went out there, cut it up as much as they could, and then they, they opened a big trail cut out all the vegetation in case a fire started on that side of town. It would give firefighters an opportunity to stand up there and burn the vegetation before the fire that was coming its way got there. So therefore, the fire would start start to sort of peter out and die down before it burned the town. And it also gave sort of a, a measure of protection to this town, which didn't have one before. Um and the response was very aggressive. Um, they benefited from timing. There were not a lot of fires burning, so they had a lot of equipment and crews available. Uh, but they went after that fire knowing that everybody would be watching. And uh, in the end, there was sort of the reaction, you know, we have to, as a community, we have a role and we have to to be responsible and understand that as beautiful as it is to live here, maybe we we, we can't be completely surrounded by trees or brush or vegetation of whatever kind you have around your property. Uh, and two, that, um, you know, as much as we cut budgets from these uh, from these agencies, there will come a time when we will need them. So the, the, the question is, do we risk it or do we keep funding these agencies so that when the need comes, they are prepared to face the needs adequately? Um, and I think the state of Arizona learned the lesson. In fact, the fire chief told me it was a lesson learned in the hardest possible way. Well, thank you so very much once again for coming tonight. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That's all for tonight's Author on Tour. I'm Darren Foden. We have been podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, Colorado. Stay pod-tuned in the coming weeks as we podcast Authors on Tour.